Welcome, and thanks for joining us for the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast, a new audio series brought to you by Futures Without Violence. In these short podcasts, we will be speaking with leaders in the work to end violence against children and in their families. In particular, we explore the myriad ways that systems can be transformed to provide community support to adult and child survivors rather than relying on a putative response. We prioritize guidance that advances equity and removes barriers to the best possible outcomes for the most marginalized. We see this as a crucial pivot away from the harms caused by institutions and systems and towards supports that center survivors and their families and communities. Our aim is to generate a national discussion about how we can transform our mindset and our practices to holistically improve child and family safety. We hope you will use these shorts to engage in discussions in your organizations. I'm your host, Surabhi Kukay. Let's dive in. Welcome, Amy. I'm so glad to get to talk to you today. Um, I want to start by inviting you to introduce yourself, where you're from, uh, what you do there, and we can get started. Go ahead. Great. So I'm Amy Torsha, and I work with the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence. And um, I have worked with them since the year 2000 as a children's advocacy coordinator, uh, coordinating different projects that all have had to do with children and youth uh, and families. Right now, I'm coordinating a project called Healing Together, and it's very exciting and lovely. Um, focuses a lot on bringing healing and connection to families, parents and kids together. Mm -hmm. Before I worked at the network, I started my work as an advocate in 1987 as a children's advocate in a domestic violence shelter. So I was there for 10 years and learned, I think, the most I know there. Uh Excellent, excellent. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, as an advocate for children, I know that you think a lot about uh, well, from the parenting end of things, that's uh, like what you're work- working on this healing project. But also you think about how we uh, as adults in a system that is trying to support children may or may not get get it right. And so I wanted to spend a little time with you because uh, to have you share your wisdom with our listeners around this very unique power dynamic between adults and children. Because, you know, it's like the one place where we've all been oppressed and then we grow up to oppress younger people in one way or another. It, whether we're parents or not, it, it, it's sort of baked into almost, well, most cultures, not all actually. So I want to invite you to first share a little bit of how you've come to understand this unique dynamic between adults and children and what you call it and, you know, anything you want to share about it, because I've really appreciated hearing your perspective on this through your experience and your work. Thank you. You know, I feel like I've been around long enough now in this work to see the history, you know, of our work, but also how we've incorporated our work with children and youth. So, you know, and I have to say, I call it adultism, and I feel like it's alive and well here in our movement, as well as, you know, understanding and noticing that we've made 
changes in progress over all the years that I've been here working and watching and holding on, you know, and kind of centering children and youth in my work. But as you said, adultism is like a bias towards adults. And it shows up in our culture, in our society a lot, like we see it in our laws around parental consent. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, some say it's like the root of all oppression because it is the one that we all experience. And then Mm -hmm. we grow up to become the people who do it. You know, we become the people who are oppressors because we have adult privilege and it is just part of life, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and also something to really, really pay attention to. I feel really lucky that I've been able to be a children's advocate for all of these years in this work. Uh, And I still find myself having to question myself and challenge my own adultism all the time. And I think about kids every day and Mm -hmm. I'm still a (laughs) grown-up and have to really (laughs) remind myself, you know, that this is something that we're all challenged by. So yeah, um, that's, and I believe that it exists. I also believe that there's a whole lot that we could be doing to pay attention to adultism in the domestic violence world uh, and in our advocacy work. So shows up in a lot of different ways. Uh-huh. So that, that's where I was headed next. Tell, tell us like, well, based on your experience and your observation, what are some of the ways that it really shows up? I mean, you mentioned a few policy in the policy arena, but mm-hmm. even in our practice, like if we're thinking, I mean, folks listening will be folks from other coalitions, your sisters, your colleagues in this work. Um, how does it show up in your work, in their work, in all of yeah. our work? Well, you know, our, we all know that we grew up um, with really scarce resources. And so when we started our mm-hmm. work, it was really about finding immediate safety for adult survivors of domestic violence and their kids. And their kids benefited from that because they found safety and support. However, kids were secondary and kind of indirect mm-hmm. survivors then because our resources were really scarce. And um, it continues, though, because we are... We're still considering children and youth as secondary or indirect survivors mm-hmm. of domestic violence. It shows up from our funders mm-hmm. in the language that they offer us when we're applying for and getting grants and reporting on grants. And sometimes it looks like indirect or secondary survivors of domestic violence. Sometimes we're asked or not or unallowed to kind of count children who aren't directly connected to an adult mm-hmm. that we're already working mm-hmm. with. And we know that that doesn't work for kids. That's not always how they need support from us. Sometimes it's not connected to their parents. And, you know, when I'm, th- when I'm talking about kids, I'm talking about like baby infants to 17 and a half year olds or 18 uh-huh. year olds. Yeah. So um, all of those kids, and they're so different and so unique and they have very individual and unique needs. So So from our funders is one way that it shows up. I would say that another is um, how we staff our programs sometimes to work with children and youth. Often we hire, um, you know, a children's advocate or a child advocate, youth advocate, and then we funnel all of our resources uh, Mm -hmm. to that one person, one or two people. And then they... And then, and then what we don't do is build capacity across the rest of our staff to be able and feel comfortable working with children and uh, instead like kind of relegate all the kids' work to, to one or two people. And right. um, there's a lot of turnover in those, in those positions because it can be really lonely when that's, mm-hmm. when that's happening for folks. Um, it's the easiest route to go that way, and it's much harder 
to build capacity across all of your staff and to do kind of like some of the soul searching that I believe we really need to do in order to not be adultist in this work. I have some ideas that I'll share with you about how we can really unravel it in a bit, but oh, I, I do feel it like it shows up. I do feel like it shows up in how we allocate positions. Um, I know that we've been kind of shifting towards thinking about family advocates, which is really positive in a lot of ways because it kind of centers the family and their connection and healing together. Um, and as we do that, I think from a children's advocate perspective, it's also really important that we also let kids know that they have an advocate that they can mm. that they can specifically talk to confidentially that uh, is for them because one of my big points, I guess, is that children and youth have needs that are connected to and also separate from their parents. And mm. so we need to also like give, we need to be able to create space for them to share those perspectives, be an individual with us, as well as support their parent and them as a family. Um, yeah. It's really like thinking of young people as whole, like from yeah. the moment they're born. Like, I mean, it's such a, it sounds so banal to say it, but it's really, if we really engage with the youngest members of our society as whole from the beginning, then they're never going to be secondary or corollary or, you know, they are completely there, uh, whole survivors who need supports. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's so mm -hmm. true. Yeah, I, I feel like we have to be really careful when we're making these kinds of shifts that we're making sure that we're not doing it from an adult like an mm -hmm. adultist place. So to think about creating family advocates is really a beautiful thing to aspire to. And kind of until we've had the deeper conversations about children and youth, we have to make sure that we're actually providing youth advocacy and children's advocacy and not kind of just defaulting to adults, which is where, which is kind of what we've always done. And it's the easiest path. So it's harder. It's much harder to create children's programming and build capacity across all of your staff to be comfortable with kids than it is to just kind of like have a children's program and let it be sitting by itself mm -hmm. over here. Um, you know, some people don't love working with kids. Some people don't like to, you know, to have kids sitting on their lap when they're answering a hotline or even walking to mm -hmm. their office. Some mm -hmm. folks are like, you know, I can't deal with teenagers. But the point is, is that any parent that comes to us for for advocacy, wants us to be able to support them as a parent and mm -hmm. also their children, no matter if they're a teenage boy or like, you know, mm -hmm. a two-year-old. <laughs> right. right. As we know, if we're parents, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. I have, mm -hmm. um, there's a couple other things I think about when I, I notice how adultism shows up in really tangible mm -hmm. ways. One is, um, for instance, in a programming situation, we might have a women's support group, like a mom support group, and the need is for the moms to have a support group. And then what happens for kids is there ends up being a child care component to the, to the support group. So that really neat, meets the needs, again, of the parent because they're getting kind of respite and they're getting child care for their children, which is awesome. It's usually really fun. Um, another way to kind of flip it would be to have children and youth support groups that are really focused in for them. Because when, you, when you're creating um, a childcare situation as a children's support group, you can have infants to teenagers all in one space. It's a little harder to do, you know, to be kind of intentional about how mm. you're creating a curriculum, that kind of thing. So again, it's like kind of an adult way of looking at providing children's services 
it's needed and it's really, really important, but it really shouldn't be all that we're doing with kids. Providing childcare is really important. And also having support groups for children where they have like the same age kids in the room and the mm-hmm. facilitators are really kind of there specifically to support kids to talk about certain feelings. That's a really kind of child and youth centric way of looking at mm-hmm. creating programming for kids. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and probably hearing from kids to know what do they, what they want. Like what, right. what even down to like, what, do you want a basketball hoop or do you want soccer goals? Like, do you want to, you know, like, what do you want in your space right. to make it livable? Yeah. Centering young voices seems like, um, yeah, another piece of this puzzle. Yeah, I don't think that we tend to ask ourselves the question. Like, we're getting better at asking mm-hmm. ourselves the hard questions around things like racism and mm-hmm. classism and discrimination against LGBTQ plus mm-hmm. folks that, that we're working with. But I don't think we're in the habit of asking ourselves about kids. And in every decision that mm-hmm. we make, we're getting better at asking those other questions, right? To make sure that our spaces, that our mm-hmm. services are friendly to a diversity of people. But we kind of lump kids in with all of those other mm-hmm. oppressions, right? We lump them. If we're, if we're talking about racism, of course we're talking about kids. We're including them in that conversation, but actually we're not always doing yeah. that because it's a under, I think that kids are an underheard population still in our work. So we need to ask another set of questions. So mm-hmm. when we're asking ourselves all of those questions, it's also, and are we also being held accountable? Are we accountable to the children and youth that we're working with as well? Mm, beautiful question. And all the diversity that they bring with them. Yes, yes. Yeah. So these, this is an intersectional identity, no doubt. Mm-hmm. So when you're, oh, sorry, were you going to say some more? Did you, okay. Um, no, I can keep going, but I'll stop there. <laughs> takes me to a question. Maybe you'll go in this direction anyway. Um, if, if others are trying to get better in this direction, who should they be reaching to? Like, who are their natural partners in reimagining their work to be to really center young people um, along with adult survivors? Like how, yeah, who should be, are there partners in communities or at state level or that are natural fits or is it the young mm-hmm. people themselves? Like what, what do you think, who should people really be involving in this transformation process that they might undergo? Mm, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I'll tell you that internally, I think, children and youth advocates who already exist in your programs and your sister programs Mm -hmm. um, come from this lens, the lens that I'm, that often most of the time come from the same lens that I'm. And so they're kind of an kind of experts at being living kind of on the fringe in our movement and being, Mm -hmm. you know, needing to kind of like get up on the table and be like, but what about the kids? So, and, and so I would say, Lean heavily into listening to your own staff and also your sister program's children and youth-focused staff. And then outside of our community, I would say we've learned a great deal from our queer youth organization here in Vermont because they really listen to kids. That's like what they do. Mm. They are experts at it. And when we don't do a good job at it and we don't always do a good job of it, we can learn a lot from them. They're really good at like youth engagement and having youth as leaders and paying them to be part of, you know, leadership. We have some programs here in Vermont, some of our domestic and sexual violence programs who are beginning to step into that a little bit. 
through another grant project where they're paying interns who are youth to be, you know, be doing work right alongside staff, but from, and really mm-hmm. listening to them and, and taking leadership from them. Mm-hmm. So, so I would say, and then the other, you know, there are always people who are, there are always organizations locally who are really youth centered. The domestic violence world is really an adult movement. It's really, mm-hmm. it's, it's an adult movement. And so that's why we're kind of like always feeling like we're pushing that out the envelopes around kids. But we have teen centers here that like youth service bureaus. They've also, they put together sometimes youth listening uh, panels where we can just kind of pop in and listen to what say kids who are experiencing foster care are, are saying to their community. So I think there are mm-hmm. lots of opportunities for, for um, to learn. You just have to really kind of pivot towards finding them and opening mm-hmm. ourselves up to that. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's so much that we could do. Like, I think a lot about organizational kind of assessments, kind of self-assessments, um, mm. where I'm kind of shifting now to like all the stuff we can do. We have yeah, more resources now. Yeah, we can, we can, um, we have so, we have so much more than we did like back, back when we started, when we really didn't have the sure. resources to support kids and they really were secondary and indirect. And now it's like, we've got, we really do have so much more. So I think that the, the first tangible thing is that there be a lot of support from leadership to say, you know what, it's time for us to like, think a little bit more deeply about building capacity for children and youth work. And then it takes just a lot of soul searching and like creating really intentional ways so I worked with some programs here where we did an actual a self-assessment and each staff did their own first to be like, okay, how do I feel about working with kids? How do I feel about working with parents? Is there anything that I'm finding mm-hmm. that is a barrier for me from my childhood or just like, I tell myself, I don't like teenagers. Why is that? You know, mm-hmm. or am I scared? Am I uncomfortable? Am I worried? Like, what are those things? And then started to talk, you know, talk with organizations about, looking at their missions and their purpose statements and their value statements to see if they're including children and youth in those, at Mm. least in their thinking behind them. And, you know, do we just like hiring practices, for instance, do we ask all new hires about children and youth and their experience about what they think kids might be experiencing? Even Mm -hmm. if it's a legal advocate Mm -hmm. who is a hundred percent working with parents who 100% have kids. They may not be in their office, but it's really important that they, you know, when they're hired, that they know they're coming into an organization that thinks about children and youth as survivors of domestic violence. Um, And that all staff get training about kids and parenting, like supporting parents and about child development, all of us, you know, again, so that like, I think about children and youth advocates they, they learn everything. They know how to do the hotline. They can do like whatever they learn about being oh, oh, yeah. adult advocates. They do it all. And then, you know, some other, other advocates, they're not, they're not, um, it's not part of their training really to learn about kids in the, in the big sense. So it's, it's like that, like just getting everybody's capacity to a place. It's like, yeah, I could sit down and play with a two-year-old on the floor and be like, feel good about it you know, feel confident about it. And I can rap with a teenager sitting who's waiting for their mom out here and say, what can I get you? And how's your day been? And not feel afraid of that. 
Um, and I feel like too, there is, um, a lot of just programming that that we can really think about, like how do we do support groups? What are we providing for children and youth? Is it based on their needs? Are we asking them what they want? Just like you said, mm-hmm. what what do you want? You know, even little kids, like what? How would this be better for you? How would you like your playroom to look? Or what kind of mm-hmm. toys do we need to have here? And for teenagers, you know how hard is it to live in this shelter or um, what can we do to make this easier for you? And how can you have some sort of voice? Um, Yeah. What do they need from us? Physical environments, again, like thinking about like not just uh, adults and how the physical environment would benefit them, but also kids. And I know, actually, I know people think about this all the time, Mm -hmm. um, how to make shelters like feel comfortable and safe for children and also teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are lots of thinking about like the yeah. big conversations that I think organizations can have and from like mission policy places to um, to programmatic places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is like a whole uh, like another axis of equity, like really to be thinking about meeting people where they are with what they need when they need it. You know, it's like a it's a really beautiful exploration i'm i'm so pleased to be hearing from about it from you so in vermont um do you have any little success or anything you'd like (laughs) to highlight or share about your efforts at the coalition or in your local programs well i feel you know yes we've been one of the coalitions who's had children's staff uh at the coalition level for many many years uh Mm -hmm. and it hasn't been only focused on, for instance, like a, like a child welfare focused, um, Mm -hmm, systems mm -hmm. change, uh, position. Although that's always been a part of what we're doing. We have built a tremendous amount of capacity in Vermont among our children and youth advocates. And it's really, uh, like a learning community. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, we spend, well, geez, before COVID we met once a month and during COVID we've been meeting every like twice a month, and sometimes more wow. on Zoom to just kind of, you know, regroup, recover, support mm-hmm. one another. Uh, but what, I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a real um, strong connection across people who do children and youth advocacy. And what ends up happening is that when we come together and we share resources, it really, they um, folks take it back to their programs and then they're able to share that with their coworkers. And then their coworkers are, are building capacity yeah. Um, because they've got this like really lively and mm-hmm. vibrant, you know, people or person who are bringing like resources and conversations and pushing the envelope a little bit. So state level and then also in individual programs. So it's really, I think we've been doing that really, really well. Building community and mm-hmm. supporting them in their local efforts. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So... Okay, this is a question I ask everyone. Okay. It's just two of the most important things that if your colleagues are trying to do this and their their coalitions are really trying to elevate this conversation, two of the most, your two kernels of wisdom that you would want them to go away with from yeah. this conversation. Yeah. Well, my first one would be learn about adultism and just like do a little bit of soul searching individually about it. And think about mm-hmm. your own adultness Mm -hmm. 
open yourself up to thinking through that. It's, it's actually really hard yeah. um, because it brings up stuff for us about our own childhoods, it brings up stuff mm-hmm. for us about our parenting and mm-hmm. also our, our advocate work, like our work. And mm-hmm. it may make us feel like we're not quite doing what we want to be doing or should be doing. But that's okay because isn't that part of how we grow? Yeah. So I think that's the first thing. Like, notice it. Try to notice it in your work, and then learn about it and open up to seeing how we're participating in it as privileged adults. How we're, yeah, uh, being adultist in our work and in our lives. And then the second thing I would say is that you know take an action step with it because it's really easy to not do it. Um, Mm -hmm. in our work because we are so focused on adults. And we do believe, I think in our hearts, we want to do the right thing. And we do believe that if we're doing well by parents, then we're doing well by their kids. And that's actually very true. It's not an untruth, but it's just not quite enough, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) So I would say do that. You know, if if you're in a leadership position, when you have the capacity to do it, maybe have a staff meeting about like, we're going to actually just get together and talk about kids. Let's just talk about mm-hmm. it. Let's just start at the very first beginning of it and like everybody, let's talk about it. Yeah. Uh, and if you're an advocate, maybe you're like, you're like the pearl or the sand in the oyster shell where you're the one who's going to like start irritating about it and be like, you know what? I think we should talk about kids. <laughs> I think we should talk about how we're supporting them here or in our organization, making simple yeah. changes to start. Nothing Those is too the small. Things. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Do some soul searching and take the next step. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Amy. It was so oh, delightful welcome. to talk with you and for sharing your wisdom and your experience, but um, also doing the work in Vermont. I mean, I know it's making a big difference for children and families. Thank you. Um, you can find out more about what the Vermont Coalition is doing at their website, which I'll link to in the show notes for this episode. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Towards Promising Futures podcast. If you think there is work going on in your community that would add to the discussion generated by this series, please email us at thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. That's thepivot at futureswithoutviolence.org. Email us with information about your effort and we'll be sure to reach out to you. Special thanks to Chance Taylor for his support in editing these shorts. Thanks again for joining us.